Hey, I saw something cool in USA Today just this morning. As they gave it to me at the hotel. And the last page, there's an article. You got to see it. The title of it is Pastor on the Job Hunt. Good luck in this market. Terrible time for new and veteran ministers. And then it goes into an example. By the time she graduated from Vanderbilt Divinity School in May 2009, the Reverend Kara Hildebrandt could translate a passage from the Greek New Testament with relative ease and write a sermon like a pro. Then she hit the clergy glut. Too many preachers, too many small churches, and a bad economy makes this one of the worst job markets for Protestant ministers in decades. I thought that would encourage you. Um, if you're thinking about moving on. It it does say that there are over 600,000 ministers in the U.S. and only 338,000 churches. But um, I like this also because it says uh, some of the factors are, for one thing, older pastors don't retire. So, interesting. (laughs) Well, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Bob took us to the point where a bunch of people got saved. And then we see in Acts chapter 2 that beginning with verse 40, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. That's what I call working That was an amazing beginning. And for so many of us, we think back to baptisms as being the start of a lot. All those those old pictures of old baptisms just bring back so many memories. And, you know, you hear old guys come up here and talk about the old days. I know for you young guys, it's probably kind of a drag because all you're talking about is, oh, man, if you should have seen it in the 70s, but, you know, you in the 60s and the 80s and you missed it. It was the real thing, you know, and so get all the old pictures and you're, you know, you drag out the aging rock stars and everything and, and you're just like, so what? I mean, this is 2010. What's going on here? Um, but let me explain something to you because my topic that I have is essential church from Acts chapter two. And I can't talk about essential church without telling some stories. Ultimately, you know, the Bible is in so many ways a storybook. Jesus told stories almost all the time. Frustrating that he never did a systematic theology because it really would have helped. We could just go, okay, the book that Jesus wrote on the Calvinism-Arminianism thing. And, but instead he told stories. And the book of Acts, as we go through, is just the stories of what happened. And, you know, we're not senile and just drifting back to an older time. It's it's more than nostalgia. It's the way that culture carries itself on as we tell the stories of that which God has done. So you probably have to bear with some of that. And I want to make something clear, too, as I'm talking about essential church, what, what church really is from Acts chapter 2. I'm not trying to say that Calvary Chapel is the only church that does this. It's just my experience. So that's my frame of reference, and that's where we're all from. And uh, so for me, there's this blending of what I see happening in the first century and what we've witnessed the Lord doing in the book of Acts. And so sorry if I sound like an old dude. I am. 
verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Now, you've heard, you've probably preached plenty of sermons on that verse and talked about it before, but I just want to tell you, when I, when I think of those concepts, it brings back so many memories. And my first thought, to be honest with you, um, is, man, I can think of so many ways in which so many of you are blowing it. So let me tell you what's wrong with you based on what Calvary Chapel is and based on what the book of Acts says. But the more I meditated on this passage and studied it, I just began to hear from the Lord more and more of areas in which I've failed. So I don't have time to pick on you or anybody else, but let me just tell you what I've experienced in some of these areas, what my example was, and then to let you know kind of ways in which we can come short, because I'm, that's one thing I'm an expert on. Notice where he says they continued steadfastly. Pros carterao is the, is the Greek word there. The word pros means toward, and carterao is a word that means to strengthen yourself or to be strengthened. And so what he is saying is their work was something that was moving toward strength. They were basically training. They were basically working. They were pushing. They were improving It was something that they were devoted to in an almost exclusive way. They decided at some point, here's what we do. And I'll tell you something, unless we learn to narrow our focus and do what we do, the world has plenty of other opportunities to distract us and get us doing other things. In the years that I've been a pastor, I got a pilot's license. Don't have time to fly. Spent countless hours in the martial arts, and I limped to show for it. Um, There are all sorts of little distractions that I've picked up, but these people knew what they did, and they did it. And at the top of the list is the apostles' teaching. I don't think I have to go into great detail with you about, and it's already been shared a lot already, how important it is that We start with the teaching. And I think for most of us, that's what drew us in originally. I can remember as a brand new Christian hearing Pastor Chuck teach. And I had never heard anything like it before. His teaching was different. I had heard plenty of pastors. There are a lot of them out there. But there was something about him that even I would, if he was on the radio, I'd sit in my car and listen to the end. I would sit in those days on, at the Sunday night services. In the summer, he'd go till 10 o'clock, 10, 15, something like that. And I would just sat with rapt attention at this guy's teaching. And it, it was, it's hard to describe exactly what it was because it's not that he was saying things that nobody else had ever said. But there was something about the diligence with which he taught the word of God. That, that strength that, for one thing, he was there every time. You didn't have to call and find out if he was going to be there. He was just there. Didn't matter if he was sick. He was there. He, in all the years up until the, 
the little speed bump that he calls his strokes, um, I think he missed one Sunday for being sick. And it's not because he wasn't sick, it's because he played in pain. I think that one Sunday he sent Chuck Jr. first service, and then Chuck was able to get there by second and third. But that consistency, you start to build up some credibility when you're always there. And then another part of it was just going through the Bible. You knew what was coming next. There was that faithfulness. But also there was something about Chuck's teaching that made it different, and that is he was just a guy who was sharing the word. He wasn't, he wasn't all preachy about it. He, wasn't, he didn't come off like he, he was putting on a show. It was, he was the first conversational speaker that I had ever heard. And that's kind of amazing, but it was a very rare commodity in those days. But as somebody who had been disappointed by the lives of some people who were so flowery and had such a flourish about them, were so polished, a guy who believed that the Word of God was strong enough on its own that he could just bring it. And those, those pauses said as much as, and I'm sorry if this sounds like a eulogy, Chuck. I'm like, yeah, I know they won't let me speak at his funeral, so I'll do it now. But this is just, this is just reality. There was, there was something very real about it. And, you know, it challenges me. When, when, when Chuck speaks, he looks like he believes what he's saying. And he's not putting it on. You know, he had that smile and that, that presence that... I, one time I was speaking and I was talking about, I was taking shots at TV pastors, okay, in church one day. And, and I said, you know, look at these guys. They're all representing God, but look how mad they are. I said, turn on Christian television and turn the volume down. And you'll just see these guys just veins popping out, seething. They look like they're really angry. And my son was homesick that day and he was watching on the internet. So he goes, hey, dad, I turned the volume down for a while. I go, yeah? He goes, you looked mad. <laughs> but I, you know, I look at people who pick up stylistic things, things that you would never say in a normal conversation, and I would never hear him say it. Like, can I get an amen out of that? And that kind of stuff, those preacher kind of jargon things that he would never do. And yet, this last Sunday, um, third service, I got to preaching at the end of my message, and I ended by saying amen, and I'm like, I do. That's not, I don't do that. But we had that example of somebody who believed that the word was enough. And what challenges me is how hard do we work at the apostles' teaching? How hard do we work to make sure that our messages are accurate, to make sure that they communicate well? Are we, are, could we said to be, be said to be continuously devoting ourselves to, to that, that we're really focused on it? Messages just don't roll off somebody's mouth. It, it, it takes labor. It takes work. And, you know, we saw an example of that and still do. Do we follow that example? I'll tell you something. You know, I don't think I've ever preached a sermon that wouldn't have been better if I had spent another half hour in preparation and cut another 15 minutes out of the message, um, ended on time. Um, but why don't I do that? Well, there's other stuff. What do you have that's more important than the apostles' teaching? Later on in chapter 6, they, they, they came up with deacons 
so that the pastors could devote themselves to teaching and prayer. That was it. So this is our priority. This is where it starts. What do we do? How are we doing? How are you doing? How am I doing? And I'll tell you something. A lot of times my messages aren't... Well, when my messages are the best, they're when I stole them from Chuck. But beyond that, my messages... I know could be better, and I, and I want to do that, and, I, and I'm convicted whenever I realize I can do better than that if I just put in more effort. A lot of times my messages incorporate a lot of other things other than just the text. I'll hear myself on the radio sometimes, and I'll be going like five or ten minutes before I even know what passage I was teaching on, and I'm like, where, where did that get off? Teaching the Word of God is not just an excuse for us to do our little rants. As I said, the apostles' teaching, <laughs> it's, it's what it's about. Back in the, in the old days, how far do you think Calvary Chapel would have got with all those hippies if Chuck got up and started preaching politics and, and supporting Richard Nixon? But, and then how good would those messages be today? If it's all that dated stuff that just, you know, went past, it's, it's silly. And that's why it's just the word. It's just faithfully presenting the word of God. Now, not only were they continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, but also in fellowship. And this is an easy one for us to miss. A lot of times we think of fellowship as just the donuts after church or something. The word fellowship, as you know, is the Greek word koinonia. Now, that doesn't mean anything. It's just like, yeah, koinonia, fellowship. It's their equivalent. Um, the word koinos in the Greek from which that comes is a word that means common, shared. Well, we know you probably fake enough Greek to know that the New Testament was written in what was called koine Greek. It comes from the same word. Koine means common. What that means is the New Testament was written in the language of the day that's, that most of the extra-biblical Koine Greek that we find is from grocery lists and things like that, everyday communications. And they were devoted to being common. Now, we all want our people to fellowship. We all want to look at the church and go, wow, and I'll tell you, Calvary had that in spades always. It was, you'd come and everybody would know everyone. You'd, you'd come early to just hang out with people and people would start singing. People who weren't worship leaders bring a guitar to church and just start playing it and everybody's sitting around. And you know, you came to that church, you were going to be hugged by a bunch of people. There was this togetherness. There was a, there was a sense of we're all a part of this together and everybody was your brother and your sister. And it was just amazing. It was inspiring. I had a psychology professor who um, told us, and he was an atheist, but he told our, our class, he said, he said, I've always said that if there's ever a group of people who genuinely love each other unconditionally, I want to know about it. And he said, I've been to encounter groups. I've been to different religious groups. I've been to all kinds of places. And he said, it always looked like there was an agenda. He said, I never saw it originally. He goes, the one thing I did do is somebody invited me to go to that tent over in Costa Mesa. And he said, I, I have to tell you, I don't believe what they believe, but he said it was real. 
They really loved each other. They really cared for each other. But we all want that. And we can even try to generate it, make up programs that might bring it in. But the question is, have you started where that comes from? Have you, have you thought where it begins? And it begins with the whole idea of being common, of being real, of being available and accessible. What's been wrong with so much of the history of the church has been that there's a hierarchy that those who are in ministry set themselves in a position where there's a distance between them and the people. But that didn't happen at Calvary. When Chuck first came to the church, the whole church would go out to lunch on Sundays after church. And he is there digging in holes to this day. If a, if a pipe breaks, he's the first guy in the mud. And it was just everyone at that church knows him. You know, there isn't, it's, it's completely possible for anyone who wants to be able to talk to this man. And I, I don't know too many pastors with much smaller churches than him who you could say that about necessarily. But see, when you're common, when you are just there, when you, even in your teaching, there are ways to communicate that put the cookies on the bottom shelf. And there are ways to communicate that, that say, I'm much greater than you are. And if we're going to expect to see fellowship, one way to work at fellowship is to work at commonness, work at connecting with others, work at being someone who they feel like, wow, you know, I could know that person. They would understand me. Now, it's hard because so often we think we're better than other people. Pride is something that always brings us down. I've always been kind of bugged at the fact that, and I, and I, I think there's probably a scientific basis for this, but the intelligence of a senior pastor, I think in most cases is in direct proportion inversely to the effectiveness of their ministry. And for you, for you powerful people, um, the smarter somebody is, sometimes it seems like the less effective they are. Now, everyone's offended by that because you're going, you know, I'm smart and you're saying I'm not effective. And you're going, I'm effective, you're saying I'm not smart. Yeah, um, for the most part. Now, there are exceptions. You know, Chuck was one of the guys who was at the top of his class and everything. So was the Apostle Paul. Now, you may be exceptional. Let me just tell you how this works. If you're one of the real smart guys, it's probably going to take you years until you realize that all that smarts isn't going to make this happen, that this is something that the Holy Spirit has to do. But guys inevitably who just dive right in and God uses them incredibly, they're the C students. They're not the A students. In fact, the A students are sitting in their mother's basement blogging against those C students who are actually getting ministry done a lot of times. It's just the way it works. And in our day and age, unfortunately, you know, those guys have the technology to be able to communicate in a phenomenal way. It used to be that a pastor didn't have to really answer too much to anyone, maybe to board members or a few disgruntled congregants. But, you know, today, there are a ton of people out there who really think it's their ministry to, even though they aren't pastors, to tell pastors what to do. And there's this, and I appreciate the effort, but, you know, really, am I, listen to how Bob Coy ministers. I mean, look at, the, look at what God's done in his church. 
I'm amazed that there are a bunch of people who are piping up saying how he's wrong about stuff and what he should do and shouldn't do and they're and picking them apart. Hey, if I'm on the pier and some guy's caught a whole stack of fish and I'm still playing with my bait, am I going to go tell that guy how to fish? You know, I mean, yeah, it, there's no doubt. I go, there's no doubt. Bob Coy and I get in a room, have a fight. I got him. We get in a room, we compare SAT scores. Yeah, I got him. But what? God, but a lot of good that's doing me. You know, look what God's doing in his life. And I think a lot of that is because, and Paul talked about this in Corinth, how he had to learn. He goes, and to get to the point where people realize that it's God, because he won't share his glory with anyone. He said, I came to you guys and I was kind of bumbling and fumbling around. And I really didn't, I didn't impress you with my great words. And people use that against him. And some of the, some of the discernment people there in Corinth were criticizing Paul because of, you know, what he was doing and what his problems were. But Paul just said, that was on purpose. I came to you to connect with you in a very real way. And I, and I think that men who God uses, sorry, if you get elevated to some higher position, you can think you're really smart, but God's not impressed with smart. He really isn't. And, and that's why he presented the gospel for people in the streets and people who didn't know a lot. And it's why he says... If you're going to come to the kingdom of God, you better do it like a child. Well, what does it take to minister to a child? That simple faith, that clear presentation. And until you work at being common, you'll never work at communion. You'll never work at koinonia. You'll never see that carry on in your church. Now, let me say this, though. As a pastor, you have a role to play, and you're not just one of the people. You're not just, hey, yeah, it's just like all of us. And a lot of guys try this because it's like, man, I, I want to show fellowship, so I'm going to be in fellowship with all my guys. Well, one of two things will happen when you just let everybody into your whole life and everything. Um, they're going to get close and they're going to get freaked out by what they see. And then they're going to bail on you. Or worse yet, they're going to get involved and they think they're your partner. And then God calls you to do something that they disagree with and and they bail and they're upset. Because I thought it was, I thought we were a team. Man, I'll tell you something. I can't tell you how many times over, and I, I worked for Chuck for 25 years. I can't tell you how many times I went to him to try to convince him that he was wrong about something or someone. And usually it was because I was going, Chuck, do you realize what this person's saying? Do you realize who they are? Do you see the kind of people that you're surrounding yourself by? And I didn't see the irony of it. I couldn't look in the mirror and realize. And, he, and Chuck was very gracious, but he should have just said, Dave, look at you. Why do you think I have you here? It's because I'm incredibly gracious and tolerant of, of nuts and kooks. That's, that's why you're here. That's what it's about. But Tom Stipe was saying yesterday about yeah, Chuck would let anybody in. And it's, it's, it's true to this day. I mean, if you listen to K-Wave, which is, just, which is Chuck's pulpit, it's, it's amazing. Over 400,000 people are listening to that radio station as, as people teach. And, and yet, there are guys on there that he disagrees with. 
And I've given up on going, uh, did you know that this guy just taught uh, cessationism? At, I won't say what time. Or did you, you know, I'm hearing five-point Calvinism coming. Or do you have any idea the kooky things that, because I'm afraid somebody will do that to me, and I'm sure they have, and I'm sure I've said things that are crazy. Um, but he's not threatened because he's secure. And that's a part of communion. It's realizing, hey, we're all in this together. We're all a family. And, and Chuck's always, though, he's not big on those, um, we are the world, let's get all the churches together kind of things. Um, we have done a few of those. And it, it was very telling. One time at Costa Mesa a few years ago, they had a thing for, like, I forget if it was praying for the world or whatever, but all these different churches came. And it was kind of inspiring, you know, we thought, oh, this is great. This must be what Jesus was dreaming of when he prayed in John 17. Because we had Anglicans and Lutherans and Presbyterians and, and Baptists and all sorts of, you know, crazy charismatic people and everything. And it was, they were all there and different pastors had different roles to play. And I thought it was cool, but then I'm going, Chuck, do you even know what these people are going to say? you have any idea? He wasn't worried about it. And every single person, here's how it went. First, a Presbyterian guy came up and he goes, man, I can't believe I'm standing here. He said, I was sitting right back there when I gave my life to Jesus Christ. The Anglican guy comes up and he goes, yeah, you were sitting right back there. I was right here on the carpet sitting in the floor. And every single person did that. And it was like, this isn't about trying to build Calvary Chapel. Now, yeah, in a way, we're the first multi-site church because all you guys represent satellites of what God did originally, but ultimately, it's the body of Christ. And he always let that happen. I'll never forget. We, he took a bunch of kids down and went on Catherine Kuhlman's show. And most of you people don't remember Catherine Kuhlman, but she was like the Benny Hinn of her day. And, and Chuck went on there, and he was so gracious and you know, she was, she has these flowing robes and I'll never forget this one moment where Catherine Kuhlman goes, well, Chuck, if you are the papa of the Jesus movement, then I want to be the mama. <laughs> and Kay goes, uh, excuse me? <laughs> no, she, Kay didn't say that. The rest is true. But see, because it's okay. This is the body of Christ. We're not, we're not to rip each other apart. Funny story at the end of that little prayer thing, after all those guys did that, we, we saw also why it's not that great of an idea to get people together because it had a lot of attention. And this big, huge dude comes walking down the center aisle right at the end. And he starts going, I'm your brother in Christ and I need money for my rent. And he starts yelling and ranting. And most of the people there are people we don't know. And our people are used to people being dragged out of church. But we're like, these people probably haven't seen this. And Chuck's looking at me. And I'm like, guy's big. But I came down and I tried to calm him down. But he starts fighting. And he was huge. And, you know, so I'm hanging on to him. And a couple other guys are jumping in. And we're dragging him out the center aisle. And some dear prop denominational lady says, but Chuck, he's our brother in Christ. Let's help him. And Chuck goes, lady, we're just going to get him outside and then he's all yours. (laughs) (laughs) 
but the point is, and I do have one, when <laughs> common, regular people, as soon as we become something else, we're not doing that which the Holy Spirit ultimately really wants to bless. And, and so we need to, there's a natural, you know, distance that just happens when you're in ministry. But the fellowship as being with the body comes because they feel like it's okay to be themselves. They feel like they don't have to fake it. A.W. Tozer once said, and I love this quote, he said, a person who can tell a lie and make it sound like the truth is really dangerous. But he said, even more dangerous is the person who tells the truth and makes it sound like a lie. And that's what we see a lot of times. That's, it's that it, that sounds phony. I, don't, I, I like what you're saying, but it sounds so weird and crazy. And we are here to build bridges to say, we're like you. And I, I heard Chuck on the radio the other day he was talking and mentioning, he didn't name churches, but he was talking about, you know, some churches do this and some churches do that. And then he stopped himself right in the middle of the sentence. And he goes, God, I thank you that I am not as these. <laughs> and then he goes, boy, it's tough. <laughs> Because it's hard to evaluate and not be judging others. But communion is with the body of Christ. As pastors, I believe we need to have a, the correct balance of, of communion and fellowship with those in our body. We need to find friends. Um, a lot of times people who aren't connected with your specific ministry are the best ones to, to be close to. That's, a, you know, that's an awesome opportunity that so often we don't do. I don't do it as much as I should. I have a lot of great friends, but, you know, I'm not, I'm shy. I'm not one to really open up to people and stuff. So I need to work steadfastly on that one. And then he says in the breaking of bread, commentators differ as to whether he's talking about communion or just whether they're having meals. It would seem to reference meals later on in the, in the chapter, Um, probably the Lord's Supper here. Um, seems like with, when it comes to communion, it, it, people either go to one extreme or the other. It, it's either some mystical, superstitious transubstantiation or consubstantiation where you think, ooh, you know, there's some, this is like a seance. Or the other extreme is, what, and what people used to accuse Calvary of is, oh, they do communion with Kool-Aid and potato chips, which... As far as we know, that never happened, but uh, it's one of the houses that could have. But, you know, this is a huge part of of the body. In the early church, it was big. They probably did it on a weekly basis incorporated with an agape feast. Um, But it was always one of my most special moments at Calvary. It It was communion. It wasn't, I spoke at a retreat for somebody a while back and they said, we have communion elements back by the back door, so go ahead and grab some on your way out if you want. There's got to be a balance. And at Calvary, Chuck, Chuck would wear a suit on the night that he was doing communion. I don't, but I'll work on it. But it was, it was a big deal. This was a special night. He would never miss it. He would never let someone else do it. And when you went there... It was Chuck standing down there leading the songs and taking us to the Lord's Supper. And it was a powerful event. Some of the most memorable ones were at the last baptism of the year 
when Chuck would serve communion to us at the baptism. Uh, at the New Year's Eve service, you'd hear fireworks going off at midnight, and Chuck every year was, after the prophecy update, was serving communion. It was a big deal. And a lot of times we kind of, you know, honestly, I'll get to church and on a Wednesday night and I see the things, oh yeah, communion's tonight. You can kind of tack it on. This was something that, you know, I think was always treated as something that was continued steadfastly in. It was consistent. It was, it was special. It was intimate. It, it wasn't just like every, every month, yeah, pull out 1 Corinthians and, you know, skip this over with. It was special. It was powerful. And then he goes on and says, and in prayers. Literally, there's a definite article, and in the prayers. Not sure exactly what the prayers were. It was clear that prayer was a huge deal because that's one of the two things the apostles said. You deacons need to do what you do so that we can pray. And so they had that personal prayer, but also it was probably a reference to worship as they would sing the psalms. In the very next chapter, in chapter 3, the first thing you see the church doing after the day of Pentecost is Peter and John are going up to the temple for the prayers. And they would have morning and evening prayers. They were heading there for the evening prayers at that time. So are we into praying? Are we, are we scheduling prayer? Do we encourage people to, to pray as they're worshiping God? Do we do corporate prayer? Last night we had such a special time of worship and prayer, and it was all prayer. And that's what it is. Do we, do we choose songs that actually express biblical truth and prayer? Or, or do we go with the, some of these new worship songs just almost are creepy. Like, you know, you're cuddling up on Jesus and you feel his breath. I, I don't relate to that. Um, if you do, okay. But, but man, when I read the Psalms and I see those powerful prayers that are there so often, the psalmist just expresses the, the depths of my heart. And, you know, coming to Calvary, that was some of the joy is just singing some of those basic, simple choruses. For many people to this day, most of the scriptures that they have memorized came back to someone singing those prayers. And so they were into that a lot. How much of an emphasis do we put on it? Um, for me, honestly... Um, I'd much rather preach than pray a lot of times. Because, you know, you, people start praying. Somebody's praying something goofy, and I'm distracted. And, but sometimes it takes continuous, steadfast strength to stick with it and to do what God has called us to do. These are the things that the Holy Spirit did in the early church. These are things that, you know, I could go on and on about stories. But... Um, this is what church is about. And you see what happened. Fear came upon every soul. They were going, whoa. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. They had all things in common. Same word. And sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. And continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. When we lose simplicity, we'll lose gladness. When we complicate things, we make them too burdensome, 
The first thing that goes is joy. And the joy of the Lord is your strength. Satan knows that. If he takes your joy, he's got your strength. Gladness and simplicity. Man, if you weren't there and didn't experience it, it's not too late to see the Spirit do the same thing in your lives today. I don't want to tell you, I'm excited to see how many young guys are here as senior pastors, but I don't want to tell you like, oh, you missed it. Sorry. Just can't be repeated. Can't happen. It's essential church. It's just the basics of what church is supposed to be about. And I hope you've had a chance to experience it somewhere. But God's encouragement to you and what the Spirit wants to do is for you to set the scene in your body so that that diligent teaching and that beautiful fellowship and that wonderful celebration of the Lord's Supper and those times of intimate and corporate prayers will create the kind of memories in other people if the Lord tarries as those that we've experienced has created in ours. Miracles happen when this happens. And they didn't have miracle services. They didn't try to make miracles. And one thing that we always saw, miracles were happening everywhere. I remember a guy, brand new Christian at Calvary, and he was driving on down in uh, North Santa Ana. There's one really wealthy area there off Flower Street. And this guy was driving down one of those streets with the huge front lawns and long driveways and big estates. And he was driving and he felt like God told him to go stick his head in a mailbox and yell, Jesus loves you. And I mean, yeah, he'd been a Christian like a week and, and he's like, oh man, this, this, I think I'm losing it. But he parked his car. He just couldn't get it out of his mind. And he got out of his car and he walks up. To, he's looking around. He doesn't see anybody. And he's like, okay. He opens the mailbox and he screams into the mailbox, Jesus loves you. And he didn't realize it, but the size of the big mailbox acted as a megaphone. And it just resonated through the neighborhood. And he's like, oh, man, he ran to his car. I remember him telling me about this. And, and before he could drive away, a guy came running out of the house that was right there. And he goes, um, he goes, uh, sorry, look, I, I'm, I knew, I just became a Christian. I thought God was speaking to me, so don't call the police or anything. It's, it's cool. I'm, I'm leaving. And the guy goes, no. He, he goes, I was in my house, and he said I was standing on a chair with my head in a noose. And I said, God, if you're real, you better tell me right now. And he said, I heard, Jesus loves you, coming from outside. That's, I'm sure we had hundreds of people yelling in mailboxes after that. It didn't happen. All kinds of other crazy stuff. But those are the kinds of miracles that you can't explain through theological explanation or definition. But it's just what God does when the church is what the church is. And that's really... That's the essence of it. I would encourage every once in a while, boil your church down to the essence. Cancel a few programs. I I did over the last, well, I did for 10 weeks. I canceled everything except the message on Sunday, a service on Sunday night that I'm doing for new people in the church, and then home fellowships. And the home fellowships are just discussing the message from Sunday morning. And it was great because I found out which ministries 
thought they were more important than the church or what God showed to me because they were upset that I canceled them. You know, there are people who just think paintballing is essential to church. But it's been amazing to see what God has done by canceling some things. You know, you need less staff. I, you know, I was telling somebody upstairs, you've got to have an iPad and get that Mantis Study Bible program. It's unbelievable. It's changed my life, you know, in a wonderful way. And he goes, yeah, I just can't afford one. Hey, if you can't afford an iPad, fire an assistant pastor and <laughs> buy one. Seriously, if you can't afford an iPad, what do you have an assistant pastor for? So where was I going with that? Oh, yeah. Um, hear from God what's the essence of the church and do what he shows you to do. God bless you.